Happy New Year, <laughs> Happy New Year, Max. <laughs> um, you know, goodbye 2020. Yes, yeah, seriously, good riddance. We're done with you. We're moving on. Hello 2021, you sexy thing. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, it's kind of a weird thing to be starting the new year with actually our final episode of Bird Talks Season 2. This episode, we chat with Annika, who's a human rights lawyer based in London. I feel like even though it's the last episode, it's a super good one to be listening to at the start of the new year because there were so many points that made me think it was really inspiring. It definitely made me feel like I'm really not doing enough to help other people in my life. Like listening to someone who is just doing the most amazing work. Um, and she brought up a million points that really made me think living in London and she's a fellow Aussie, which we like. I thought she brought up a lot of good points about looking in the world that we live in, especially being in London and the differences and disparity between uh, people who live in such close quarters. Literally, you could be in a suburb and have such different life experiences. We always think about you know, the third world and countries overseas, uh, war-torn countries is having these issues and we never really look at our own world. And that's something she talks about a lot. Mm. And it was very sobering and it made me want to do a lot more research uh, into what might be happening in the cities that we live in. It's really interesting. We talked a bit about context and how context impacts how we treat people so for example she spoke about having her experience in Lebanon and how people perceived her by her appearance and how they treated her and how that impacted her ability to contribute to the culture and the society there while she was there while being in the context of London her appearance um, was a different factor and, and she wasn't treated in the same way and I think that's so interesting um, when it you know, it comes down to how we see people and whether that's the color of your skin or whether that's the kind of clothes you wear. Um, we make these judgments and we treat people poorly or affectionately based on those. And that can really impact how somebody thrives within society. Yeah. And how you set people up for, you know, success or failure. She also talks about how we need to relook at what a successful society looks like which I think is super prevalent, especially with the pandemic going on. And that's really shown a lot of this stuff and brought it to the surface in a way that maybe we've been ignoring a little bit. But as heavy as that is, she also balances that with a really interesting conversation about how she deals with the heaviness of her work and uh, does a lot of yoga and meditation. And it sounds like it's a really big part of her life. And it was a really nice way of reminding myself the importance of that side of your life and really nourishing your own self in order to give back or uh, be your best self in work or in your relationships or whatever other sides of life that you have that aren't work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the thing that came out of the meditation and yoga was this idea of awareness, this awareness of self and awareness of body and, you know, I've been trying to get you on the meditation bandwagon yeah. for a while, <laughs> but it's, it's one of those things that, you know, we hear about it all the time. You hear about the, how positive, what a positive impact meditation can have on your life, 
but it's one of those things that you can't fully grasp until you do it yourself and then you really start seeing you know basically what that awareness does and what it brings to your life um so it's really interesting and it's a good reminder you know starting the new year new new year's resolutions um you know ways to look after yourself and you know this links in really nicely with our our sponsor ritual um, which is a multivitamin company um, so if you're looking for a new new year's resolution you can hop on that bandwagon yes. get yourself a subscription get some multivitamins into your life you literally don't have to do anything but subscribe and they just arrive and then you're doing something super good for yourself without even really having to think about it it's it's the best of both worlds. So we've got a really special offer. We've got 10% off for your first three months for our bird listeners. If you go to ritual.com forward slash bird, uh, you can start your ritual today. Yeah, that's ritual.com forward slash bird. And, you know, I just want to say a huge thank you to all of our listeners, our, our old and new listeners. It's, it's been a wonderful journey and hoping that 2021 is a positive one for you. Yes, fingers crossed. It, it only gets better. <laughs> so i'm actually going to start with this question which i find fascinating sure so if you're at a party or something yeah and people are like hey you know so what do you do yeah what's your spiel it's changed it's so changed and and in a negative way so i start with I work in human rights and, you know, people are interested in the human rights question and then they ask, well, in what field? And then when I say children's rights and I say child abuse and children being tortured, it it feels like the tone of the party will drop. And it's been interesting because when I moved to London, I was obviously very interested in meeting new people and going to lots of social events. But I, I felt like the Debbie Downer of the room oftentimes because it's this, it's this aspect of humanity people don't really want to talk about. But I remember this one time, actually, um, this was in, I was visiting a friend in Switzerland and it was very fancy, you know, um, and one girl was quite interested in probe and she was like, no, no, if you're using um, what specific rights are we talking about in, in the European context? And then, and she asked a question, so I answered and I said, oh, look, we're looking at, so there's Article 8, which is the right to private life, which covers family relations broadly. Um, and then there's also Article 3, which is very heavy. It's um, freedom from torture, uh, degrading and inhuman con- um, treatment, sorry. And so then she kept probing, like, and she was like, okay, I'm getting Article 8 and Article 3. She's like, well, I, how do you use them? And I didn't really want to keep talking about this. I'm like, well, you know, everyone has the right to family life and you don't want to break a family apart. But if a kid is being tortured within the family, well, then you have to kind of think about removing the child. And then the minute you say the words child and torture in the same sentence, like there's, there's no vibe in the party. She's like, where are you doing Yeah, this? and then someone, and there was this uncomfortable silence and then someone... Oh, one of the guys says, well, I advise tobacco companies on how to improve their market share and that cut the ice. So, but there is, yeah, it's interesting. People kind of um, don't, it's something people don't want to think about or deal with. Yeah. But it is so um, uh, predominant, I think. Like it's, it, it happens a lot. I mean, children's rights, uh, when you think about children and human rights, it's, it, it's quite, there's a instinctive reflex to back away because it, it seems unnatural, you know, like parents torturing their kids or or in a broader sense, you know, children who are um, 
in in war or child soldiers, it seems something that's, you know, contradictory to our humanity. But that's also why it's so important. Um, and also why, in my view now, it's something that should be apolitical and, and bipartisan in that we have this instinctive understanding that children are vulnerable and need to be protected. But when it comes to the mechanisms or the legal mechanisms that protect them, you know, we're happy to happy to weaken them depending on the political will say, of the I day. Bargain them? Yeah, bargain, chip away at them. And it's interesting being in the UK because um, a lot of that has happened after austerity. And so, yeah, chipping away at certain rights, certain... Um, and a lot of it is about tax and, and welfare as well, but chipping away at just, you know, breakfast clubs at school or mm. um, school libraries or cutting funding for local authorities that provide child protection services, that has happened, you know, incrementally after austerity here, I think. And as a result, you're seeing um, children's rights being compromised in a really, really intense way, really around social and economic rights, so things around like the right to food, the right to housing, because those rights are so um, uh, entwined with welfare. There's been this this huge rise in um, in poverty, really. Someone, I, read, I went to a um, talk on the right to food and it, there was a statistic that sounded made up. It was something like, you know, the use of food banks since austerity has gone up 5,000%. Like that, like food banks weren't a thing pre-2008. Um, GFC. People were, you know, um, able to afford food on whatever welfare benefits that they had. But since the GFC, they've cut the welfare benefits, the cost of food has gone up. So people having to go to food banks where people donate food and that's how they feed their families. It's gone up five, I mean, 5,000%. That's like, it doesn't even, like, that's made up, surely. But it's not. And something you probably don't think about in the context of the UK. Exactly. This is the thing. I mean, I struggled with it a lot when I got here because I had this kind of, the big London dream, you know, and, and being tottering around in high heels, lawyering. But this city is so, it's this inequality, it's this brutal inequality that, and, and the city itself is not geographically that big, you know. So it, it's happening right in, in one borough. So I was reading some statistics this week for work in Tower Hamlets across the park. Child poverty is at 53%. 53% of children in Tower Hamlets, which is like almost central London, are living in poverty. And at the same time, a friend of mine, a corporate lawyer, works on Canary Wharf. Canary Wharf, as kind of like a square kilometre, is literally generates more money than any other place. Oh, well, I don't know if it's any other place in the world, but is up there, you know, mm. in how much revenue it raises through um, all its business activities. So that's a... That's a moral question mm. in my mind. How can you have um, this, you know, business district in one one borough mm-hmm. that's one of the richest in the world and outside that borough, 53, so like 53%, more than half of children are in poverty mm-hmm. in, in London? I mean, I think the same goes for Park Avenue in New York. Yeah. It goes all the way up in, through the Bronx and it's the same, mm. same story. Yeah, wow. It's really fascinating. It is. It's, and it's, I mean, I feel really naive. I feel, I felt my naivety shaken since moving from Australia because um, it is quite sheltered and the social safety net is much stronger than it is here. But I've never had to articulate that to myself. Like what, what holds a society together? What makes, what are the mechanisms that stop this kind of perverse situation where more than one in two children are in, you know, poverty, but you have 
bankers and lawyers and um, the rest of them making millions of dollars off illicit businesses in the Middle East. Like it, it, it sounds really um, bleak, but I've I've come to kind of see it that way. So, well, it's interesting. You kind of bring up something you said it with your naivety when you arrived here. Yeah. And I guess for having being working in human rights or coming to London to work in human rights. Yeah. You know, where does naivety fall into that place when you're kind of, you know, you, you I, I assume you have an idea of what you're getting into. Yeah. I think, you know, the really interesting thing is I've worked in um, human rights in different contexts. So I was lucky in university to um, work with an organisation in um, Israel and the West Bank on Palestinian-Israeli issues. And then in 2017, I went to Cambodia to work on a war crimes trial. So it's not that I've not you know, dealt with the intensity of that before. But the thing is about those contexts is that everyone has this consensus that something, there's something that's gone fundamentally wrong here. In, you know, in terms of Israel and Palestine, the conflict is ongoing and, you know, everyone's got an opinion. In terms of Cambodia, you know, it's, it's, there's a collective consensus that this, the country has suffered this huge trauma after the Khmer Rouge. The thing about London is that we pretend, we're pretending like it's not happening. Do you know what I mean? So it's an, it kind of to the party question. It I, I felt maybe isolated in a way where your social circles, everyone is working in a like quite a commercial corporate setting. Cause, and that's also what London is, right, this big financial hub. And then meanwhile, I'm a bit like, oh, my God, but do you know what ha- what's happening in Wales and in, in the poorer part of these co- this country because all of the business and revenue is kind of centred around London, like the implications of this system? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, naivety because I knew, I knew obviously what I was getting into in terms of the law or the, um, or the kinds of issues or matters that I'd be working on, but it's kind of this willful blindness that, has been the most difficult, I think. Where does that disconnect come from? Because I think I you make don't it, know. It's because you're right, and I like I am that person. Yeah, who lives yeah, in of course. That sort of happy place. Yeah, lucky, I mean, fortunate enough to. So am I on the weekends, right? Yeah. So, um, but why? And it kind of yeah, it goes back to what you were saying earlier with the party stuff, where people. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. They don't want to yeah, talk about nobody it. wants to talk about it, yeah. And, it, and if I start diving into this stuff, and I do, like, through school, uh, my schoolwork and other things, yeah. and my general interest, um, yeah. yeah, it's really heavy. And then it is heavy, How am I yeah. supposed to, like, live my life? It? I think part of me also feels this guilt of wanting to know about it and learn about it, but not knowing what to do about it, and also having never experienced it. Completely. I feel like... You know, oh, here's that white person coming in. Yeah, and, like, saving the day. yeah. Of course, there's there's a lot of that, and you don't want to be a save have that savior mentality. Mm. In terms of what we do, I think we, I I think it's a broader question of reshaping what success looks like. Like, what is a successful society? And I mean, giving away my political leanings here. Um, <laughs> just to Arden in New Zealand. You know, she she gave this really great speech sometime yeah, last year. Best. She's great, right? <laughs> why why is she? People sometimes call me Kiwi here. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm Kiwi, yeah. <laughs> you just, I would rather just into right. Yeah. Um, where she was saying, you know, we need to fundamentally redefine what we think of as growth. You know, GDP is not enough. Mm-hmm. Like how people's well being needs to be needs to be a priority in terms of housing, in terms of education, in terms of health. Because what is the point of having 
yeah, just you, you have high GDP, but it's just so unequal. And mm. then, you know, on your way to working in your um, skyscraper, you have to step over like four homeless people and pretend like you don't see them. That's a right. thing, right? Because we're, we're doing this consistently. Like we're just pretending like it's not there or, you know, oh, it's like it's really sad what you see at work as though it's like, oh, a one off. But mm. it's it's a it's a real um it's a political choice. In a yeah, way. that's so interesting. They're big questions and it's really easy to want to have silver bullet solutions, yeah. but they're so nuanced and um, it's all, it's, you play the long game. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know. How do we solve yeah. child poverty in, in the United Kingdom? I don't know, but, but I can tell you how we don't solve it is kind of politically motivated cuts post financial crisis that right. and it, and you know here as well the other thing is decision making seems so far removed from the communities that it affects um, because it is all centered seemingly centered in London so for yeah so for politicians in London to cut programs in Wales it, it's far removed there's yeah. they're, they've not been to Wales they don't really care and it's the same in it's the same in Australia in terms of I think in terms of Indigenous rights, for sure, there's like we have that real blind spot. It that's interesting actually. When I, everyone I speak to here in a human rights context will be like, oh, but what about Indigenous rights in Australia? I'm like, I know. It's like it's one of those things where I've had to actively, as an adult, educate myself and seek out information because historically we've just yeah. pushed it to the side, pretended really? like they've never, the Indigenous people have never existed. So it's, it's a cultural blind spot. It's the ways that we're conditioned to um, see certain people as having value. And, and you don't even realise you're seeing people as invisible because you're not seeing them, you know. You have to really work at getting around that conditioning. It's that awareness thing we were talking about it Exactly. Before. Yeah, it's really hard. I think, you know, I think doing my Masters for the first time yeah. in my life has made me think, Critically, yeah, more critically. What did anyone learn in undergrad? I don't even. I don't know. Yeah, that was a fun time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But yeah, to think critically. Actually, my husband's amazing at it. Yeah, critical. (laughs) But yeah, not taking something for face value completely, and and just being like, well, what does that mean? Well, who are you talking about? How many people are involved in this? Exactly. And you know, you're reading research papers, and you're trying to make like um, recommendations or whatever, and. Yeah, like, yeah, based on um, these 10 people that were in this research thing, and you're like, yeah. 10, people, like, 10 students from Who? this university, yeah. you're just like, yeah, how can you... Yeah. And, and, but, but then it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, then at, at some point you just feel like, well, what do I do? Like, yeah, what do, I do, what, with what do you... Exactly, and I'm still struggling with that. I went home for Christmas, and my dad is like, you are not going to fix the class system overnight, kid. I'm just, I'm just letting you know. I'm like, ah! And and that's true, you know, and you have to go for the the small wins. And my real aim in my work and also in my day-to-day life is to is to make I want my interactions with people I, I want to make people feel seen, you know, and particularly people who aren't aren't seen in a multitude in day-to-day life. And it's interesting, I had this experience before I went to came to London, I spent um three, four months in the Middle East um studying Arabic. It was just a fun thing that I wanted to do and I needed just a bit of a breather between lawyering in Melbourne and lawyering in London because I knew they would be really the same thing in terms of um, the the social parameters and your and your role in the in the um, 
in society, you know what I mean? Like lawyers just take themselves far too seriously and we think we're important and it's all very serious. So I wanted to step out of that for a minute to, to make sure that I was still looking at my life and everything around me critically. So I went to Jordan for two months, which was just like the best time of my life. And then actually I went to Lebanon, which I had never, I've never experienced anything like it because um, so in the Middle East, there's this system called kafala and it's, I mean, in, in neutral language, it's there to regulate uh, migration. But in, I say it, it's slavery, right? Because what they do is they move um, their women, mostly women from South Asia and African countries, um, go to the Middle East, mostly to work in domestic labor. So it's like cleaners and maids. But then when they arrive, they have to hand in their passports. They can't change employers without the employer's consent and oftentimes are living in really um, kind of barbaric conditions, you know, like they're living, they, they have to sleep on the balcony and then to the point where I think it's like one woman or two women a week kill themselves every in, in Lebanon. Mm. But then the interesting thing is I had always looked at something like this as removed from me because I grew up in Australia and uh, speak with an Australian accent. But when I got to Lebanon... I've never had such hostility towards my existence, right? Because in their minds, like the social rules there, they're like, oh, brown girl alone. I also quite happen to like walking and walking apparently is like, you know, a lower class thing to do. So like brown girl, woman walking alone must be a maid. And then as a result, people's attitudes towards me, it was like, it was, it was full on. Like, I mean, like, people yelling at me in the street. I had a policeman following me home one day. He was like, are you okay? And then, but then here's the thing. Here's, this is, this was the interesting slash sick thing about it. When I responded, and in my accent and my voice, I'm like, oh, hi. And it was clear that I was a tourist. Oh, the game changed, mm. you know? Like, it was, oh, welcome, la, 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 la. Uh -huh. And it was a long, oh, my God, it was six weeks of this. And it was really intense. But it, it, Really, for the first time, I had my privilege, just whatever privilege I have, just taken away. And then coming to London, I was so critical about, I mean, not critical, but having a critical perspective of, hey, suddenly I'm in this city and people are responding to me differently. You know, like, oh, suddenly I'm included. Suddenly no one's yelling at me on the street. You know, my um, ethnic heritage in this, in this set of rules is perfectly acceptable. But then I came to the cynical conclusion. It's acceptable because I look like I have, like, relative money right if I walked around if I looked like I was homeless or if I looked like I was yeah a recently arrived refugee right. I wouldn't get that same treatment so it's, it's an appearance thing but for there it's your skin and here it's your clothes exactly like exactly and we're all playing this game and we're just we're just in it it's like you don't see it when you're in it yeah. but it's when it's you kind of tinker those things that you've taken for granted I have always and actually this is also a um my privilege in being able to travel. I've never been to any place except Lebanon where people were just like, we don't want you here. Or like, not even if they're not saying that outright, that it's implied, like you shouldn't be here. Like you shouldn't be sitting in this cafe because people that look like you uh, don't do that. And so then thinking that, and it's a, you know, I was thinking about this intellectually, but the emotional effect as well you kind of you just kind of cage in you don't want to leave the house yeah and then when so when I got to London I'm like who are we doing this to every day right and we don't realize because we're part of that majority that has the happy privilege of it being included in the city and it's and the fabric of its social life yeah who are the people that are being actively excluded and have always been excluded 
and that's yeah that's where you ask that that's where the critical thinking comes in for me yeah and and why why they're excluded and how do we start to fix that Mm -hmm. because when you have that emotional experience of it happening to you like this is this is really yeah not not great and and also you don't you don't develop what your your potential like you're not contributing i was like don't you want my tourist dollars? Like, yeah. I want to be part of this. It was so... And the other thing is, before I went to Beirut, everyone I met was like, oh, my God, it's the best city in the world. Like, nightlife is great. The food is great, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I got there, I was like, wait a minute. Everyone told me that it was great, but why am I having this experience? And I realised everyone that told me that it was great was white. Yeah. So, but it, it's this really uncomfortable feeling. We're like, I want to contribute and I want to be part of this city, but I can't. Yeah. And that was just this six-week experience. But... Where are we doing that every day? And what are we missing out on? Like, what is the talent and the contribution that we're missing out on? Yeah. It's, yeah. No, I think you're totally right. And I was just thinking with the context of a cashless society. Yeah. Which we're all so happy for. But, yeah, when I had cash on me, I was so often giving it to people on the street. Yeah, completely. And now there's this, like, guilt for not having anything. Yeah. Which then makes me want to avoid them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's no connection there. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And sometimes I feel like, because I know, like, there's the guy that sells the big issue every Wednesday by the tube, and I don't have the money to buy it, well, Mm -hmm. on me, um, so I say hello to him every morning. Yeah. I say good morning, but I feel like... Yeah, is like that, condescending. Uh, yeah, is that a shitty thing to do? I don't know. I think there are, the thing that I've learned through my job here, especially around homelessness, and I've seen kind of firsthand in my cases how something progresses to homelessness, it's often, it's, it is very much linked to mental health. So I've had cases where, yeah, someone will be in social housing and then because of um, their mental health conditions, like say they've got schizophrenia for example and they they're playing music really loudly to drown out the voices in their head and then you know the the other neighbors there's a nuisance caused then the it's really crazy here how much power social landlords have like they can apply to have someone sent to jail which is really in my mind I'm like oh do you mean social landlords so specifically in social housing yeah specifically in social housing yeah like they have these huge they can make all kinds of applications to kick people out um which I mean on on one hand of course they're the landlords but like the how deep those powers go like they they become it becomes a criminal matter very quickly it's it's been really shocking to me so um, Which kind of goes against social housing. Yeah, right? doesn't it? And there's a whole... It's so... It's messed up. There's, like, this different regime that covers social housing. It's called, oh, my God, the Anti-Social Behaviour and Policing Act or something. And it's, like, anti-social behaviour, which is almost Orwellian in its terms. Like, mm. anything that's not social. Um, and if you are antisocial. The social landlord can apply for this thing called a power of arrest to get you arrested. And then if you continue to be antisocial, whatever that means, the police then take you away. And then it becomes, you become a criminal. And I've had cases where it's like literally um, someone playing music really loudly to drown out the voices in their head. They keep doing it and they go to jail. Like it's not, I'm not exaggerating this for dramatic effect. That's literally what happens. And so then, and then that, that whole process only exacerbates their, condition exacerbates their mistrust they then have nowhere to live and then they become homeless so it is that that process though is governed by a series of active choices so when we encounter people on the street 
I mean, yeah, I, before coming to London, I would be like, oh, I, I'm not really sure what the backstory is. Like, of course, if I have change, I'm happy to give my change to um, someone in the street. But now it's it's crazy in London doing the work that I do, seeing what the steps that have led to that and the ways the system has again and again and again failed someone that just needs treatment, mm. like needs adequate treatment for their condition. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like we we penalise people for being sick and poor. That's, um, yeah, it's, it's really what happens. And it's tough. It's really, I don't know, I, when I started I was like, I, I want to do this work and I'm in it and my heart is in it, but also I want to be a human on the weekends. Right. Yeah. That's a real thing to manage. And so How do you manage that? Meditation and yoga for sure. I've, I've been a meditator for a long time, like 10 years, but yoga has been quite interesting because that's been kind of a two-year practice because it's so centred in the body. And so now, you know, multiple times a day I'll read something and you have this like, <gasps> it's it just, <laughs> people who sit next to me are just like, you either respond by like laughing at some random you know, mildly amusing comment in a witness statement or you get really angry or you kind of go, Jesus Christ, because it's it's full on. But then with yoga, I've learned where we store emotions in the body, like just that instant in the moment. So when I read something horrific, like my shoulders go up, right? My shoulder because your what your body is trying to do is get you into fetal position. Mm. So the the tension is in the shoulders and the hips and then if you're really angry, it'll be in the jaw. So that has been really helpful in making sure that I'm releasing feelings or reactions as they happen mm. and not waiting for like a year, Storing two years from now, yeah. from now and then, um, yeah, having some kind of shoulder or, or hip issue. Yeah. So, yeah, that and, and day to, awareness, coming back to awareness, day-to-day awareness of, okay, information, traumatic information, emotional reaction. Mind, my mind sometimes says this is quite interesting. So it's not that it, – it's interesting because my feelings will go a different way to my intellectual kind of reaction because my intellectual reaction is, okay, great, how do we frame this as a case? What do we do? Like, you know, let's fight this, like the, the lawyer part of my brain. But then the human emotional thing is like, yeah. But then behind all of it is just your – is that day-to-day present moment awareness that can hold all of it. It can hold so much more than you think it can. The deeper you go into that awareness, you can, yeah, you can... Do you mean in that way where you become, you're observing more? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. I've been trying to actually apply that more. Um, I think I'm in a good place, well, not a good place, an ever-evolving place, but far more aware than I used to be. Amazing. Um, but we were watching a movie the other night and I knew there was a scene that was going to come up that makes me cry. Yeah. And already I was getting worked up. And yeah. so I was kind of in my mind doing this like awareness thing of like, okay, like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's okay to feel these things. Of course. That yeah. sort of like non-judgmental space. Exactly. And then, um, I was really curious to see if I had the capacity when that scene came up to just observe and observe my feelings. Yeah. I didn't. Oh. <laughs> I started crying. But, yeah. But it was just that quick, because it, it was so much effort for me to stay in that observing place. Yeah. It was so much easier to just switch and start crying. Yeah. Um, and in the end I gave into that because I just didn't have the, because I was like, 
There's so much going on now for me. Yeah, completely. To, to be in that space. Yeah, and the crying is a natural as a response as well, right? So yeah. it's um, it's interesting though because I found the other benefit of that awareness is you're also you become aware of beauty in a way that you haven't been before. So the deeper I go into um, into just this observational space part of my mind, I can hold all much more trauma not necessarily my own but the trauma of the intensity of my work but then to counterbalance that I have I am much more able to observe just like the beauty of you know the light hitting the plant here or and in a way that moves me Mm. like and that sounds really wanky I know but I need that balance to feel and that was Mm. that was where I came to with how do I do this work and also feel like a, a for human (laughs) and not just be down in the dumps with it is having that counterbalance of seeing the beauty of the Mm -hmm. day-to-day to say oh there is so much pain in the world but there is also so much beauty um and we just have to make an effort to see to see both you know you just do not when we we're numbing I don't know I feel like we're in this real numbing culture right Mm -hmm. where we numb materialistic yeah, we numb through Instagram, we numb through uh, drinking, we numb through, some people numb through drugs or, this, and also this achievement, achievement, achievement culture, which I was definitely privy to before. Um, but when you're in that, you, one, you numb yourself from your own pain or numb yourself from pain of others, but you also numb yourself from the beauty. So the, I guess the other side of working on seemingly very intense matters, cases, is that you see the redemptive side of humanity, but also you have to train yourself to see the beauty to to keep going in a way. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess that kind of comes back to this thing I was saying earlier around, like, it, you see, I see the guy with the biggest shoe and I say good morning, and it, there is this acknowledgement of another mm. person and not wanting anything, and it is that sort of, you connect with somebody or Completely, something. yeah. So I guess that that is this... The beauty of like moments um, and seeing people completely. Yeah. Can I tell you the story about? Um, so when I was in Jordan, I went to um, a B and B up in up near. Um, it sounds more dangerous than it was. It really wasn't up near the border of kind of Syria and Israel because it's quite all quite close. And I had dinner with um, a family to mostly to practice my Arabic and I was trying to explain they were like oh tell me about your family tell me about this and etc etc and I was trying to explain actually so my mother passed away when I was in university and I was trying to explain to them I my dad is around my family are in Australia and they they just kept being like but where's mum and where's mum and I forgot the word for um like dead in that moment which I was like oh god how do I explain this and so in this creative roundabout way I was like mum is with god like you know in in a way that they would understand and they it was just this really interesting human interaction they're like mum's with god mum's with god oh and then you know the the room kind of fell silent when they realized and the woman this is man it, it really rang home for me the importance of connection and how intrinsic it is to being the human experience when they all realized the mother she got out her phone and then she was like she showed me this photo she's like oh this is my daughter she's still in Syria with her child um and she's like aren't they beautiful and like not you know not necessarily prompting needing a response from me but in my mind I understood that moment to be 
oh, I see you have pain. Let me show you mine, yeah, right? Yeah. And this, and I, I don't know, something about it really stuck with me because we think about, and, and you know, Syria being a good example, like this constant barrage of um, news, news of Syrian refugees, Syrian refugees, Syrian refugees, bombings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here was, you know, seemingly someone who's, you know, this character in the in the news media, like the Syrian refugee. We're having dinner and it's just literally like, I'm a human with my pain and his, and, and I'm showing you mine. And she's like, I'll show you mine too. But and I'm not for a minute saying that it is the same level, right? But the the other thing I found is the more you can acknowledge your own pain in a general sense but also like insecurities and and all your fears the more you're comfortable with someone else telling you theirs you don't because you're not numbing yours you're like hey I'll you can tell me yours too because I we can we can share this so that's been yeah it's really really interesting journey I think that's that's super interesting and I've definitely experienced you know the 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 opposite of that was when you are vulnerable and somebody else can't be yeah and then that's when you just realize like oh wow yeah well I'm not gonna waste my time here that's a tough space isn't it Yeah. yeah it's really and then I think in the past I used to be like oh they're terrible and they can't in relationships or in friendships just like oh they're well they're just really crap at the job that they're meant to be doing but now I've come to a much more compassionate place of you can only go um, as deep, you can meet others as deeply as you've met yourself. Yeah. So it's like, oh, we're just not totally. at the same place. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that, yeah. that's sort of my conclusion too. So like, <coughs> maybe in a few years' time we can reconnect. Yeah. Evolved. <laughs> yeah, completely. It's just like we're just not at the same space. And also this, I think when you have the need to connect deeply and some some people just don't, you're like, no, 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 let me just show you how good this deep connection can be. But some people just just don't need it, maybe, yeah. in the same way that you do or in the, on the same terms. I'm, I still don't know what to do with that. I'm just the deep and meaningful, like, let me tell me about your life. Let's yeah. just chat about everything. But not everyone needs to do that yeah. on, as, as frequently or as, as intensely. But the more I've come to just acknowledge that about myself, the more... Um, meaningful like my personal relationships have become but also my work like I spent a long time thinking oh I'm just going to be like this corporate lawyer like very stiff in a suit um and it took me a while to realize (laughs) yeah it was can you imagine yeah this is this is a real thing people I meet in London now they're like what but it was oh my god I was just like achieve 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 a plus I in first year university I was like I want to be a mergers and acquisitions lawyer not knowing what mergers or not knowing what a merger or an acquisition was yeah but then through my own kind of grief with my mother I came to her I just saw the bigger picture quite quickly when I realized that I just needed I wasn't going to be a mergers and acquisitions lawyer because I need to connect deeply that's just part of my psyche and so now yeah bring it back to the party example you know people are like well how do you do that or why would you do why would you do that even it's like oh look it's it's seems it's intense but it's it's meaningful and it's so human like I get to ask myself I genuinely feel really lucky that I get to ask myself this question of what does it mean to be human like what what does it mean to be human what does it mean to heal especially for a lot of the children's cases like what do these children need now to heal from trauma to live fulfilled happy lives to the extent that the law can give that to them Mm. and I think that's a yeah that's a privilege yeah, that's amazing, I, and I think you're right, and I've, I've been kind of going down a similar path, it's like, well, 
I want to spend my time that serves us or humanity in some way and whatever way that can be. But that's where I find, yeah, value and fulfillment. Totally. And and not so much, oh, well, I'm just going to keep going up this ladder in, like, the world that I live in kind of thing. Exactly. Completely. And if I bring it back to the meditation, you hit this point, I think, in your meditation practice where it's all fun, like, it's all like, yeah, la, 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 watching your breath and it's this fun thing you do. And then it comes this point where you have to confront really uncomfortable parts of yourself, right? The Jung calls it the shadow and, like, the shadow self of all your shame and pain and trauma. Um, and it's like a it's, – it's, that's the point you really want to turn away, but it becomes – you know, it's why they call it like being a spiritual warrior. That's the warrior part where you're like, okay, I have enough capacity in my awareness to see this fear and shame and, and angst and anxiety. And that's, you know, when I say before it was like very rigid and achievement oriented, all of that stemmed from this real like fear of needing to prove myself and, and just showing people I was worthy. But ultimately under all of that is this fear of like a little girl that's like, oh, but what if I don't do well on my maths tests? Like, will anyone love me? Um, and when I went through this process a few years ago, the it's it's like, it's yuck and it's it's tough. But what comes, um, what fills the place of the fear is exactly what you've said. Like this need, like this, this compassion and this love and um, equanimity, but also this understanding that we're here to serve. And that's such a game changer because you're like, who cares about me and my puny ego? Yeah. Like, I'm going to be around for what until I'm hopefully 80 or 90 and then fade into nothingness. So how do I use this time to serve? Well, like, exactly. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and I say this to people as well. It's just like, yeah. well, I mean, every, this is like a common thing, but when, when people look back on their lives, they're not going to be like, oh, yeah, I, I did 18 hour days. Or, yeah. About the Sadie's, like. Completely. I mean, so, yeah, when my mum was ill, it was when I was in law school, right? And so it was this real clash between my little 18-year-old brain was like, no, they're telling me the new A-plus of life is to be a corporate lawyer, so I'm going to go for it. And then seeing, you know, the what actually happens to the body as someone is dying, right? And so I would have these – it was crazy now, like, looking back on it, but, like, my mum would be in hospital and then I'd have to go to some stupid, like, interview or these networking parties where you have to show that you can – you're comfortable drinking a, you know, 400 bottle, a $400 bottle of champagne in fancy buildings. And I'm grateful in some strange way that I saw past the illusion of that quite young because I'm like – I would go to these things like – you're not seeing that, you know, I'm dealing with this huge thing at home and you're not seeing the whole person. This is a facade. I'm coming here pretending like I didn't spend the whole day in a hospital with my dying mother and like, oh, yes, hello, yes, oh, Chinese economic growth, eh? You know, it felt so inauthentic for me. Um, but I'm grateful because it means that from, yeah, I've, I've taken, made career choices very much keeping that service idea in mind and and was able to put that the the image the shiny imagery um to the side but because I had to in a way but yeah it's super interesting and I think there's this alignment in yourself and this calmness that comes yeah. from those decisions which absolutely going back to what you're saying about yoga and the body where you know the body knows so much mm-hmm. and it knows before the mind yes. not, can yes. sort of like articulate it yes um but I was thinking the other last year I was going through an interview process um 
and it was a like a, a well-known company like global company and our friends at work there and I knew oh god this would look so good on the CD mm. um, but through the interview process I was getting just so anxious yeah. and stressed and I was just like and I, I wasn't like I didn't want to do it but I yeah felt like, oh, this you have to, to yeah and then in the end I said you know what uh, this is just not a good time for me so yeah we're like they're like, oh, no worries, you know, we'll reconnect maybe in a year or so. Yeah. And now I've got this new job that's I'm starting next month. So and exciting. Yeah, I'm super excited. And it is in the mental health space. Uh, yeah. And how smooth that process, exactly. that interview process was. Yes. And, and I, I, got, I got excited about it, but I never like, oh, my God, I'm doing it. Because to me, it just made sense. I'm exactly. Like, I'm just waiting to transition into this new role. Exactly. That's yeah. That's so wild. It's so wild. It just... Like, not to get too mystic, but, like, it just, life kind of bends for you when you're in alignment, right? Yeah. And you're in, you say, these are my values, this is who I authentically am in the world, and I can, I, I value that. Mm-hmm. And then everything kind of just falls into totally. place in a really seamless, effortless way. It's, yeah. yeah, it's so interesting, it, just seeing myself evolve around the awareness stuff and we were talking about meditation and yeah yeah, I've done meditation on and off and trying to get back into it but where I've seen it come to place is in those moments of conflict at work or something where where I realize oh this is what the meditation is coming for and now I can take a moment here it's not about me sitting on my bed doing it yes yeah applying it practically and this thing that you're saying around alignment and yourself and all this like all of that was just I, I heard it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yes, now completely. Now I understand it. Like, oh, my God, I'm one of oh those people that gets it. I know. And it's also like, oh, my God, it could have been this easy. I mean, not yeah. saying it's always easy, but just why did I pretend for so long to be someone other than myself yeah. in every context of my life? You have life? to figure it out. You have to. And you yeah. have to go down that path and whether that happens early or later. Or later. Yeah. It's just, it's a kind of coming of age that yeah. has to happen. And I, I think there needs to be a desire to evolve. Completely. As well. Yeah. There's it, this thing, have you heard of the Johari window? No. Um, so it's just a psychological model around that there, there's sort of, this sort of quadrant, sort of four four quadrants, mm-hmm. and there's a you and the others. So yeah. there's the part, there's yourself that you see and the other people yeah. see. Yeah. And then there's the part of the self that you don't see but other people see, so like yeah. your blind spot. Yeah, right. Then there's the part that you see but others don't, don't. Oh. so that's your like secret. Yeah, self. that's so but interesting. But then there's the window that you don't see and others don't see, and that's the potential that's oh, yet to come. wow. It, it may never manifest or it may yeah. depend if it's the right situation, but when that that blew my mind. I'm like, that's oh amazing. my God, what is in there? What, what is in, that is so amazing. it out? <laughs> because what I've been thinking lately, like to work in London in human rights law was like, a goal of mine for a long time and then it's this weird thing when you you hit your goal and you're like well what's next and then I've tried I really try to reframe kind of the way I go from this point on to just an unfolding of your potential like I love this window like just going deeper yeah. down the window because then it becomes fun mm. it becomes like oh what else is here you know yeah. and less about I've, I'm so guilty of, like, the resume building, like, cared way too much about my LinkedIn profile for way too, <laughs> way too long. But now suddenly it's shifted to, like, an unfolding of your potential. And nobody, the, the power in that is nobody can talk you out of that. People can talk you out of um, 
whatever choice you want to make, like I want to work here or move to this country. And people are like, oh, before I moved to London, it's like everyone's like, oh, but it's so expensive. And can you do this and this and this and all the naysayers, even though it's a really quite a relatively easy move. But nobody can ever say, oh, you are not allowed to unfold into your potential. Like that, <laughs> yeah. what? It doesn't but, make sense. But people will be weirded out by that. Yeah, people will be weirded out by it unless they get it. Yeah. But it's it, the power in that. Like you, yeah. everyone... You know, you have sovereignty over your own potential. Like nobody can tell you that you're not allowed to express what's inherently already there. Um, but the trick is seeing that for yourself. Yeah. So actually, I do want to, um, I'm conscious of the time, but this is yeah. so interesting. Yeah, sure. Because I, I just want to say something on that exact point. And yeah. I've had this conversation a lot, and especially my husband, we love to talk about it. Yeah. But this like potential yeah, that we have and these choices that we, mm-hmm. we can make and everybody has a choice um, at every point in time. Yeah. But... Again, coming back to my privileged upbringing, no worries, and, but his upbringing very different um, in, in, you know, situations where he didn't have that choice. Or, yeah. Know, when your choice is like, well, do I eat today or do yeah. I go, you know, get a new job? Yeah. Whatever it is. Um, so I kind of mm. wanted to ask you about exactly what you're talking about in the context with the people you're working with. Yeah. And how do you see mm. that in them or even in the children? How how can that apply to their situation? Can it apply? Yeah, sure. So I, I think if you start, like I fundamentally kind of believe every human has the right to develop into their potential. Like that's just... That's just existence, right? Like you don't tell the little acorn tree, like you can't be a tree, right? But somehow we do that with with people in the way that our society is structured. We say exactly the privilege that you've pointed to, like, hey, white dude, go and reach your potential. Hey, little brown girl, if you're poor, like, no, go be a, go work in a sweatshop and we'll deny you all your rights. So it is a different load. Everyone carries a different yeah like a a different weight in terms of the hurdles they have to overcome to um achieve that potential and that's that's just unfair that's just so so unfair but that being said it doesn't mean that you, you they can't right I just have this real belief in the human spirit can I say like the the human yeah the human spirit in being able to overcome challenges and and to be honest like yeah you're right with some of the cases we see some of our cases people are just so like their their psyches have just been destroyed like this because what they've suffered through their lives has been so traumatic but even in that context it's like how do we take where you're at now and help you enable you to live to your potential in this, in this context, you know, like I was speaking to a really, um, a lawyer that I admire a lot and we work closely, I work closely with him and he was saying, it's not about the law at the end of the day. He was saying, it's about, Hey, if someone's in, um, you know, a care home or someone's in, you know, had their liberty taken away from them, how do I help them live a more dignified life in that context? Right. Yeah. It's, it's a tough one. And it's, and that, I have no easy answers for that either. It's just, it's so fundamentally unfair that we carry, we each carry different burdens, some because of our, our past and then society places different burdens and expectations on us. I'm really conscious, actually. I work with um, so many of my black colleagues and they tell me stories where I'm, I'm just, I'm like horrified, you know, I'm like, that's your experience of London? Like just racialized policing and 
and and really young as well when they're kind of you know a friend of mine was telling me this horrific story where she's 12 years old and the police just stopped her whole family because they had suspicions they kidnapped someone or something it was so it was so ridiculous it's like it's a family with three kids and parents like what but you know that that forms certain traumas like she has traumas that I don't because I'm not basically because I'm not black that's really really unfair but I think in terms of our work like the work that I do it's about enabling people to achieve their potential in the context that they're in and then almost this I don't know I I think I have this this trust in human resilience and and human um and the capacity for it's a really biblical word but redemption it sounds really like this constant like this belief in the evolution of of people at large that I just kind of have to put my faith in that yeah. and and do what I can. So so I just uh, uh, yeah I think you're right. It's, it's so complex and there isn't an answer. But I am just curious about one thing. Yeah. And again on this mark, is there like let's talk realistically? <coughs> They'll just, like as much as we want to have faith and you know power of the spirit. Um, I think... Wow, I'm born again Christian. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, whatever human motivation, whatever yeah. it may be. Um, like realistically, like, it, it, will you see a client um, and just think, yeah? I mean, this is kind of your life. You're you're in this kind of little mouse wheel because of the infrastructure, because of the politics, because yeah. of how the society is, <coughs> is made up that like chances of you getting out are really, really Yeah, strong. so I think I approach that in two ways. Well, one is in terms of this specific person, I will, like, push. It, it's interesting because I've, I used to think that if you were emotionally motivated, then somehow your intellectual abilities go to the side. Like if you, you're getting really worked up about something or something you care about, you're going to be less regimented about it intellectually, if that makes sense. Okay. But actually it's the opposite. When I'm driven, like, by really wanting to do the best for someone, which is all of the people that um, I advocate for. My intellectual abilities, I just get feistier. Like, I don't back down. Yeah. Like, I'm like, no, this person needs this treatment or, or this, whatever it is. Um, so that's the case-specific thing. And then the other thing is the system. Well, like, this is, a, this is the long game. Like, I will, again, not to sound earnest, but, like, there's no... I'm not going to stop kind of advocating to change the system. That's just like systems that are unfair because we all lose in a system like that, right? When you diminish someone else's humanity, you diminish your own. And so we, and, and we all win if people are, if everyone is flourishing. And so I, that's a long game. Mm. That's a, I um, read and go to lectures with, human rights advocates and lawyers and nobody is saying that it's like a, a five-year project and then we'll be done it's a constantly evolving process and you just have to have the stamina and the and the drive yeah. to really push for it well, that's the thing about um that saying that you can't change the system the system changes you. oh yeah but it's i don't i don't really believe that because it's like i mean i'm sure 200 300 years ago and everyone was like no I'm sure there would be people being like oh we can't abolish slavery the economy you know and so and now with other things like oh you can't do this we can't have an equal society because 
whatever. And also, I think I read a really good op-ed where it was saying we're thinking about climate change in terms of as though it's an environmental issue, but climate change actually was what it's doing is bringing up all the other injustices to the surface and it's it's not we're going to have to deal with everything at once, which is terrifying, but also my optimist brain says, okay, we need to refashion our systems to be more inclusive and um, allow people to develop their potential while not destroying the natural world. So that we're at a precipice. It's, 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 I don't know which way it's going to go, but it is, there are days where I'm like, what's the point? Yeah. But then you kind of have to hope for a better future to keep going. Yeah. Hope. I mean, that's the whole yeah, isn't it? So interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to kind of wrap it up with, yeah. um, I guess kind of one thing. So, you know, I like to always ask about what, is there a piece of advice that you've been given um, or you've come across in your life that has really stuck with you? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious about that, but the, the other side of it, I'm curious about if there's something a client has said or done, especially maybe if it's a, a child, that has really kind of blown you away and just made you think like, wow, that's like something I've just never thought about. Yeah. Piece of advice. I can't remember for the life of me who said this or where I picked it up, but it was this, if you couldn't tell anyone that you were about to do something, would you still do it? So in in the sense of um, a job or a volunteering opportunity or um, this is more career related, like a, a next step. If you couldn't broadcast to the whole world, like that, oh, I'm doing this really fun new thing, would you still do it? And the reason I love that is because it forces you to connect with your own authentic self. Like, would I still do this for me if I couldn't um, talk about it and post about it, et cetera, et cetera? And that's been um, b- before every choice I've made. This was, I've heard it like five five years ago or something but before that every choice I made like some things might look really good on paper but if it doesn't somehow sit right with my internal self well then there's no point doing it if I am I doing this to be this kind of savior like this western savior um or am I doing this because it aligns with my authenticity and and more recently am I doing this because I think it's in service it's been a really good litmus test and in terms of people saying things that have blown me away, I I don't know. I think I think more with not relating to a specific case, but like these the the children's cases that I've done. Um, it's it's really made me think about what makes us human. Like this bigger question, because I think with children, when you're with children, they're so vulnerable, and you know, you you read things where there are so many things we take for granted that we know how to do, like from dressing and eating and brushing our teeth and communication. All of that is learnt from happily having parents that guide us, right, and happily or hopefully not having huge traumatic experiences. So who we are in the world, we think it's some kind of, like, testament to our strength and intelligence and I am very special. But so much of it is... um not arbitrary, but we're, we're so fragile. Like we're, and, and so with these children's cases, what it's, how it's really blown my mind is to come back to thinking we're so malleable as humans. Like we're, we're just, 
we're such a product of our environments and what we come into and and who we're lucky enough to be around and lucky enough to have parents, which it can be depressing in the sense of um, children having really terrible experiences, but it can also be empowering in the sense of if I'm the product of my environment and, and what I'm consuming and the people around me, well, then I want to be driven to make choices about those things that help me reach my potential. Yeah. And that, what, what was the name of the window? I love that. Johari window. The Johari window. Yeah. yeah. yeah just just this, this real sense that nothing is fixed. You know, human beings, we, we think we're solid, yeah. but we're absolutely so not. Yeah. And I think you're right, especially, you know, in ki- with kids, like, oh, the kid's, like, hanging with the wrong crowd or whatever. But, yeah, it's true. It's like surrounding yourself. Mm. things that you want you want to be or yeah. where you want to go it's totally um i read something in the guardian yesterday where it was like life is a verb you know mm. it's it's not this you, you we think sometimes of life is something that's external to us like my life like my friends my partner and this and that and my work but life is the process of living and 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 being mm. that is a little abstract when you're an adult when you consider consider it from an adult perspective, but when you consider it from the perspective of children who are never taught how to be, you know, like they're never, they're just not taught how to to do things that we take for granted and as a result suffer huge trauma, it becomes really, really um, striking and, and, and unavoidable that life is, yeah, it's a process, mm. not, a, not a fixed kind of entity. Yeah, and to that point where... Yeah, we we think of ourselves as the centre of the universe. Mm, yeah, <laughs> so exactly. There's a lot of centres of the universe. Exactly, you, yeah. yeah. You, I mean, you are the centre of your own universe, but yeah. also not as, not as like, your little personality. Like, you're, you're viewing it from your little place, centre of awareness, but just to not take the whole, you know, your... your I, I kind of try and think of it as, like, avatars, you know, like yeah. your little person that you are in the world because it's so arbitrary that's the other thing I think it is just so arbitrary that we grow up with this conception of who we are like Australian or um you know we pick up these things and we're like this is who I am in the world and then continue with that because it could have easily been something else yeah totally. and which would have meant a totally different existence but I think it yeah, I remember going back to Australia after being being away for years, and somebody saying, "Oh, wow, you haven't changed at all." And I was like, "God, I hope that's not yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. I hope I've changed. Like, yeah, um, I hope to always be changing. And yeah, but I mean, I get what they mean, and there is this sense of comfort, but I think there's also this real fear of change and somebody Completely. changing. Oh, you've changed. Yeah, the uncertain. I've and kind of left behind. Yeah, no, but uncertainty is scary. Like this transition away from rigid perfectionist to flowy yogi um I've had to change my relationship with uncertainty because it used to be terrifying like <gasps> what am I going to do in 2025 and now I'm like uncertainty is that window of possibility all that uncertainty means is that you are going to continue to develop into your potential yeah. in weird and magical ways that you don't can't even conceive of yet I think the best piece of advice, and I'm going to end on this, um, my own advice, it's not my advice, somebody somebody said this to me where, yeah, I'd say I wanted something like a goal, like I really Mm -hmm. want this thing, this is what I'm working towards, and they would say, oh, yeah, great, but, you know, be open to something better than that. Exactly. And I'm like, wait, better? Better than this thing I really want? Yeah. That blew my mind. Totally. It took the pressure off. 
thousand percent. If I was just like, hey, okay, but what if I don't get it? So I get something better, like amazing. Exactly. I can't even comprehend it. Yeah, completely. Amazing. Yeah, great. All right, cool. Well, thank, thank you so much. Thank you.